This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Last month, we brought you a conversation on Supreme Court thrillers, including The Tenth Justice by Brad Meltzer. That 1997 novel is the tale of a Supreme Court law clerk who inadvertently leaks the outcome of the court's ruling on a high-profile merger. But did you know that there was a real-life Supreme Court law clerk leak scandal just over 100 years ago? We have a very special guest to discuss that episode in Supreme Court history today, Judge John Owens of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Judge Owens just celebrated his seventh anniversary. Is that, is that the right term? On the bench? Congratulations. Yes. Um, he is a graduate of Stanford Law School who spent most of the time between his clerkships and becoming a federal judge as a federal prosecutor and now lives in sunny San Diego. Um, judge, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about the case of Ashton Embry, the Supreme Court law clerk who leaked? Ashton Maybe. Embry. Well, no, I think he did. You did. Yeah, you think he did. I think he did. Uh, Ashton Embry was a law clerk at the Supreme Court for Justice McKenna during what I'll say are the World War I years, during that time in our history. And law clerks back then had different responsibilities than they do now, much more administerial than what we see now, but they had access to everything, absolutely everything. And during that time, there was a kind of a nutcase reporter named John Hammond who approached the DOJ officials and said, someone is leaking at the court. He didn't know who it was, but he gave them enough clues where they were able to trace it back to a bakery of all things. They looked at who owned the bakery. Ashton Embry, the law clerk for Justice McKenna, owned the bakery, and someone at that bakery was leaking secrets to traders on Wall Street. Classic insider trading. He would know what the decision was ahead of time, as law clerks do. He would then tell certain guys on Wall Street. They would short the stock or up the stock, depending on what the decision was, and they would cash in. It was classic insider trading. Now, it was insider trading before our modern insider trader laws. One of the interesting questions here was what he did was wrong, and people knew it was the wrong thing to do, but was it in fact illegal? in 1919. Uh, the case actually went to the Supreme Court because they were trying to challenge the legal theory in the case, but the Supreme Court denied cert. We know that the Supreme Court does that a lot. It did it a lot back then. It does it a lot now. And then oddly, the case kind of melted away. And 10 years after the alleged, I think he was guilty, but 10 years after the alleged tip was made, the Justice Department dismissed the case. So the whole thing is an odd, odd story that I'm sure the court wasn't real thrilled about. I don't think there's the Ashton Embry celebration at the court every year. Uh, you know, I don't think they, they, they have a special presentation on the court about it, but it did happen and then it did disappear. And interestingly, Amy, when I worked on this back in the day, gosh, 20 something years ago, I talked to the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist about it briefly. He had never heard of it. And for a man like him who knew the court's history as well as he did, he had never heard of it. The only person at the court who had ever heard of this Ashton Embry thing 
was a librarian. Her name was Sarah Sonnet. And she started in the library in the 1970s. Great name for a librarian, by the way. Yeah, and, and a great librarian. And so she started in the 1970s. And she said when she started, a couple of the so-called old timers came up to her and said, you know, Sarah, you're going to come across some very sensitive, important information in this job. Don't do anything stupid with it. Don't talk to your friends about it. Because one time a young man did and he got in big trouble. That was the only like historical or institutional knowledge I ever came across on this story. And it was, this story, when it broke, was in the newspapers. It was a big deal. But that, so that actually leads to my next question, which was, how did you hear about this story? <laughs> right, because when I was a law clerk, I had never heard of this story. And in fact, what's so crazy about that is the year I clerked was the 97 term. That was the year that book Closed Chambers came out. Where, right. uh, yeah, oh yes. And for those who follow the court know, that was a former law clerk for Justice Blackman who wrote basically an expose suggesting that law clerks were running the building, suggesting that law clerks were really the ones making all the decisions. And a number of people were very upset. So when that book came out during my clerkship year, so I remember when that book came out and all of a sudden we were all called to a meeting in one of the conference rooms, the fancy conference rooms. It's like, I don't think we ever had another meeting in there the whole year where every single law clerk was in that conference room. Chief Justice Rehnquist comes out and he has the, the code of conduct for the, for the law clerks or the, or the court. And he's showing it to us and basically telling us what this guy did in the book. His name is Edward Lazarus is wrong. Don't do this. So, so big deal. Our year was confidentiality. Embry still did not come up during that time. So how did I come across it? Well, the reason why I found out about it was let's go back to the book you talked about the 10th justice. That book came out. You mentioned 1997. That was the year I clerked. So I figured, hey, this will be an easy way for me to write a book review. I'll write a book review on novels about Supreme Court law clerks, because there was the Meltzer novel. There was one called Simple Truth. And then there was one called Nine Scorpions. And they all came out my year. So in researching the books, I read the books, and in researching to write an article about the books, a review, I came across an article from 1960 in the Oregon Law Review, written by a guy named Chester Newland. And it was about law clerks in like the 20s and 30s and, and the World War I years. And in reading that article, there was this brief mention of this Ashton Embry case. And I was like, what? I've never heard of this. Insider trading the Supreme Court, and it's, it's like in a footnote in this 1960 article. And so I actually was able to contact the author Mr. Newland, I found him. This is, you know, like internet was just starting. So like finding people was a lot harder back then. But I found him and I got him on the phone. He must've been so excited. He <laughs> was, it, and it was a really it. good, it was a really good article. And so I, I talked to the guy and Mr. Professor Newland says, you need to go to the National Archives. That's where you need to go because that's where he found his stuff. And fortunately at the time, I had just finished clerking I was at the Justice Department in D.C., and I didn't have any kids. So it was really easy to spend my evenings going to the National Archives. So there's a National Archives in Washington, D.C. There's also what's called Archives 2, which is in Maryland. And these materials were at Archives 2. 
So I just started going to the National Archives and working with the archivist there. And there was a really good archivist named Fred Romansky. And he just helped me find all this stuff. Now, it's very painstaking. You know, it's not like you click on a computer and a bunch of stuff come out. I mean, it's you search through this box, you find a name. Then you have to request a box with the other person's name. I mean, it took me months and months and months to do this. But it was an accident. And once I got locked in on that, everything probably because that's just the way i was a prosecutor for a long time so i want to get to the bottom of things i want to figure out what happened i just would not let this thing go the book review that was great and that got published yeah yeah but the everything that was to me the real secret like what happened here which has led me to spend you know the last 20 years of my life trying to understand what happened at the supreme court well yeah the i mean the the article reads like a novel but then i think i enjoyed reading the the end notes almost as much because, because you do, I mean, it was 20 years ago. And so a lot of this stuff probably will never be on the internet, but reading the descriptions and I'm not for our listeners, I'm not making this up. Like some of the sites are things like national archives, stack area, 17 E four row eight compartment, 23 shelf one box one. And I can just picture it like something out of the movies, you know, these just massive rooms is that actually what it looks like did you get to go well, back there or did you have to request it i had to request it so those are the so the reason why i knew what stack and department da, 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 was because i had to fill out the slip okay. and i had to give it to them and then then they would do it so no they don't let us back well you might but how do you know it's in box one and not box two <laughs> well fair point yeah they did bring it to me so i did okay. have to rely on them but you remember i mean things get stolen from the national archives right and uh, that's a, you know, that's a whole nother podcast you can do about things stolen from the National Archives. So they're very careful with releasing these types of documents because some of the documents I had, for example, I had the original signed memo from Jake or Hoover. You know, and it was his handwriting on this, on this memo because there was no mimeograph machines back then. So I guess there were very primitive ones, but not like copy machines now. So I had a, an early memo that Jake or Hoover had drafted and signed you know, if I went and took that and put it on eBay, that's probably worth in the, to someone out there a lot of money. So they're very, very protected. And I'm sure they're more protected than they were back then. Scandal. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> no more law clerk scandals. As a federal judge, we do not like law clerk scandals. So seriously, though, what do you think explains the fact that there have been, you know, that this was a lot, that was, this was a really big law clerk scandal, um, but it was 100 years ago. Um, and you know, there've been basically no leaks. And when there have been leaks, they've come after the fact for the most part, like the Affordable Care Act. And nobody thinks that was a law clerk. I mean, well, I don't <laughs> at least. So why is that? I, I think a big part of it is that if you look at Washington, DC, you look, you guys live there. I used to live there. I don't live there anymore. But people leak things because it's their, to their advantage to do it, right? That's often why people leak things. For whatever, whatever advantage they think there is, there's an advantage. If you're a law clerk of the Supreme Court, it is not to your advantage to leak things. Right. Because if you are lucky enough to clerk on the Supreme Court, your life has changed forever. Your family's life has changed forever, unless you totally screw it up. And if you leak something, you're totally screwing it up. So I do think that there is a self-interest to not leaking. Plus the Supreme Court itself, it's a pretty small community. And what there are what 36, 38 law clerks now every year, if you include some of the retired justices law clerks. 
And every single one of those people has a very strong incentive to not do that. So I do think that's the biggest reason. Whereas on the Hill, across the street from the Supreme Court, stuff gets leaked all the time. And that's because there's a diff very different game being played there. Uh, so I think that that has to be the reason I think, Amy, because I can't, you're right. How, why else has this not happened? Uh, you know, there's so many cases, so many big cases have been decided by the Supreme Court. It has to be, there's no incentive. And if you look at two comparisons, in Ashton Embry, why did he leak? Money. He was getting paid $500 roughly to, to turn over this information. And $500 in 1919 was a lot of money. Uh, Embry was struggling because he was a law clerk, not getting paid that much. And he also had this bakery he was trying to run while he was a law clerk. Spoiler alert to law clerks, don't try to run bakeries when you're working as a law clerk. It's a little too much. But he was trying to do both. He's married. Financial, I'm sure financial pressures were on him. You could see how this could happen. Nowadays, law clerks, you know, the bonuses that Jones Day is paying is like $400,000. It's like twice what I make in a year. So there's no need to go do something stupid like that when you have all this money waiting for you. Uh, and then in the issue of the 10th justice, the fictional version, that was an accidental leak. It's fictional, but I actually think that uh, Brad Meltzer's is more accurate. I think it's much more likely that a law clerk not being careful is how something would be leaked as opposed to an intentional trying to cash in. on. Yeah, I think that all makes sense. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you, you, you were a law clerk for the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, can you talk a little bit about how her chambers operated and what it was like to clerk for her? Well, I'll, I'll certainly never have another life experience like that. And as much as I try to give my law clerks a great year, I'm not sure I'm on her level. <laughs> you know, we all try to be. And here's why I say that, is that I have never encountered anyone as tough as she is. I'll, I'll say is, I, I guess I should say was, but I'll slip in and out of is and was, because she's still very present in my, my mind. Now, when I say tough, I don't mean mean. I mean, she was tough, meaning that, you know, she would be proverbially punched and she would just get back up every single time. I used to box for many years. And when you box, you deal with tough people. You have to be somewhat tough to be willing to get hit in the head and not run away, right? And she was tougher than any of those people. That toughness, that grit is what I'm talking about, is very infectious. Because if you are 25, 26 years old, and you're working for someone at the time in their 60s, a you 40-year know, age gap between myself and the justice, and she's working harder than you are, well, that's a pretty good uh, alarm to you. You need to step up your game and do your best. So that infectious of just working hard, devoting that year to helping her in any way was a very inspiring year. And there are often times where parts of our government don't work that well, and it's very disappointing. We've seen, you know, in the past year with the pandemic, we've seen on the state, local, and federal level, some big failures by our governments. To know that there was someone like her who was just so zeroed in on trying to do her job as the best she could possibly do, that was very inspiring. And I was very fortunate to have had that year with her because of it. And it wasn't just a year. I mean, I continued to have contact and relationship with her over. But that year really made me think that, wow, we are lucky in this country to have people like her 
who are devoting themselves and all of their energy and all of their smarts to serving our nation. And that's just the greatest gift that she could ever give somebody. So you clerked for her relatively soon after, you know, she was confirmed, you know, she wasn't the notorious RBG at at that point. Um, But it sounds, you know, sometimes you hear sort of a sense that a, a perception that, that justices change while they're on the bench, but, but it sounds like, you know, you, she was already from your perspective, fairly fully formed. Well, yes and no. I think okay. certainly in the way she approached her job, yes, she got to where she was because she understood that she could never give excuses, right? Throughout her whole life, everyone was expecting her to fail, right? She, her mom dies when she's in high school. She's a woman at Harvard Law School. She is a mother in law school. She's a woman, Jewish woman trying to get a job in New York as a lawyer. She had all these reasons just to throw up her hands and say, you know what, I, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm just going to go do something else. Everyone was expecting her to fail. In that environment, she knew she could never make excuses. She always had to be the best at everything, and there could never be a problem. Because as soon as there was a problem, it was, well, <laughs> of course there's a problem. Look, who, you know, look, who's, look who we're talking about here. So that approach was, in my mind, very fully formed. Here's where I see the divergence, though. It's the court changed in many respects. So when I was a law clerk at the court, she had tremendous respect for Justice O'Connor and Chief Justice Rehnquist. And much has been documented about the relationship with Justice Scalia. They were friendly and they they were more than friendly. They were very close friends. And that is all true. But I never saw her looking to Justice Scalia necessarily for what is he doing in a case. I saw her much more looking to what the chief and Justice O'Connor were doing. Those two left the court. Those two were gone by what, 2005, 2006. The court changed. And if someone who you really look up to is no longer there, maybe you're not looking up to someone anymore. Maybe you're gonna look at the new people differently than you did before. I think we've all been in a position where we may have had a mentor in a job and then that mentor retires and here comes the new guy. And I may not always treat the new guy like I treated, you know, the Obi-Wan Kenobi who was there before is now gone. And now it's, you know, some new guy. I'm not, I might not treat the new person the same way. And I don't mean to suggest she treated them poorly. I don't mean that at all. What I'm saying though, just the way she approached the court would be different. I can say in my career as a judge, uh, a guy who I really, really appreciate, he doesn't always agree with them, but a guy who I really appreciated was Harry Pregerson. Harry Pregerson, for the listeners who may not know, uh, was wounded very, very badly in the Pacific during World War II and did all kinds of incredible social justice things in the West Coast. And he passed away, he's no longer on the court, and we've had people replace him. I respect the people who replaced them, for sure, but I don't view them the same as I would view a Judge Pregerson who was wounded, almost killed in the Pacific. So when people change on the court, the court changes. And so I, I, I think she was different in my mind later in her career. And I think a big part of it was the court was different. Yeah, I mean, that's, was it Justice White who said, every time you get a new justice, it's a new court. Yes. Yeah, oh, I, I have a Justice White story. Oh, excellent. So, so my, uh, my father was a law clerk for Justice Powell in the 70s. And back then, 
Justice White was still playing basketball. Now, he was an older guy then. He was in his 60s playing law, basketball against guys in his 20s. But my dad said that Justice White, even in his 60s, was the strongest guy he ever played against. Take no mercy. And, and oh, that was for sure, too. He was not afraid to hit you with an elbow or knock you down because he was a strong, strong guy. And so when I looked at the court, Justice White was not playing basketball anymore, but there was this locker. And on it, it said white with a piece of like athletic tape and a marker that said white. And we were all told, do not open that locker. Do not mess with that locker. That is Justice White's locker. That is his. Do not mess with it. So he was still around and he still had that crushing handshake justice white like it would be it was like shaking hands with a robot i mean you just like you know like brush your hand uh but yeah so justice white was a strong strong even in his 60s he was knocking kids down so you touched on this for a second but are there are there parallels between how justice ginsburg ran her chambers worked with her clerks and how you work with your clerks do you take them? Do you take them to the opera? Do you take them surfing instead <laughs> since you're in San Diego? Um, well, I certainly don't work till three in the morning like she did. Uh, I have a more regular, <laughs> regular work schedule. Um, you know, I do not, I, you know, I feel bad about the opera thing because she can't, she loved opera so much and she cared about opera so much and she took us to the opera. And, you know, I put a smile on my face and I went, but I, you know, not down with the opera. I mean, every once in a while, if it's like a Wagnerian thing, I might listen to it in the background if I need to really get, you know, Apocalypse Now or something like that. But other than that, not a real opera guy. But no, we, we, we do. Now, this past year has been very tough to do things, right? right. Yeah. I mean, last year, 2020, was the year my chambers were supposed to go to Hawaii because the Ninth Circuit has Hawaii in its circuit. And every four or five years, you get the Hawaii calendar. And mm -hmm. so we were supposed to have the Hawaii calendar in so your clerks we thought they were going to Hawaii and instead they were going to their apartments? Yes, yes. Uh, we still had the Hawaii cases, but we did not do them in Hawaii. So what I try to do, I think the biggest lesson I learned from her, I, well, I learned a ton of lessons from her, but in terms of my law clerks is, if you get an opinion assignment, start it right away. Mm -hmm. Start it right away. And that's one thing we've seen throughout Justice Ginsburg's career was she did not let opinions linger. I mean, she was often the first out of the gate. Right. Her and Justice O'Connor would you know, battle who was the first one out of the gate. And I always thought that's very important because you're never more prepared to write an opinion than right after argument. And that was one thing she really drilled in our heads is get going now. Two weeks from now, you're not going to know the case as well as you're going to know it right now. And the reason for that is because, especially on the Ninth Circuit, you don't have time to wait around. Cases just keep coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And because we're not on a term system like the Supreme Court is, we technically don't have a deadline. Now, there are internal court deadlines that I treat very importantly. But because you don't have that June time where the chief is saying you have to have it done, it's very easy for stuff to just, well, I can make it better. I can make it better. No, there's a, there's a time period to get this done and get it done now. That's the biggest lesson I've learned from Justice Ginsburg in terms of how I interact with my clerks. Get it done. Look, the parties want the decision. We're not here to write law review articles. We're here to decide cases, and people are spending a lot of money for us to decide these cases. So let's get these cases decided. That was something she kind of really drilled in our head because she was a litigator herself. And I don't think she wanted to wait three or four years for a decision. You want it now. So we owe the parties that. So that's a, a big lesson I've worked with my clerk. 
but no, I, um, I don't bake either. I leave all the baking to my spouse, much like she did. So in that respect, I guess we're, we're similar. Talking about the ninth circuit during the pandemic, you, your court has live streamed its oral arguments long before the pandemic. And so once COVID hit, it wasn't that hard to shift to no. remote arguments. How have they gone from a judge's perspective? I think they've actually gone far better than I originally expected. Uh, I think when this first happened, you know, I was like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? How is this possibly going to work? It, you know, once the shutdown kind of happened in March of 2020, we were up and running very quickly. I, it was very quick. Very quick on the arguments. And I was looking at some statistics and we have had fewer arguments in 2020 than we did in 2019, but it, not that much fewer, maybe eight, eight to 10% fewer arguments. And that could be from a variety of factors and isn't right. necessarily just COVID. So overall, I think it's gone very, very well. I think what it means is that lawyers and judges need to be up on technology because if you're not up on technology, you're going to be out of a job. So I think it's a lesson to everybody. You, you can't make the excuse of, oh, you know, that's just for my grandkids know how to do this kind of stuff or my teenagers. No, you need to know how to do this stuff. Maybe you don't need to know how to code. Maybe you don't need to know how to use all the social media, but you need to know how to use the technology to do your job. And I think that's an important lesson for all the lawyers. So, you know, one question I often get, Amy, is do I think this is going to continue? Is this yeah, the I mean, future some people of like it better. So, you know, that, like you don't have to travel. Right. Well, look, I, on a personal level, yeah. It, well, I usually travel 40 to 50 days a year. And so right. it's, it was, it's been nice on a personal level not to have to do that. I do think it's important for us, though, to get back in the court because otherwise I'm just a guy on a Zoom. There is something to be said for going into a courthouse. There's a reason why the Supreme Court looks like it does with all those steps mm -hmm. and the black robes and up on the bench. There's a reason for that because it gives us a certain sense of legitimacy. That's all we've got. You know, like Justice Breyer recently said, well, I don't have a standing army to enforce our rulings. It's only because people believe in us. So I do think it's important to get back to a physical courtroom and, and continue to do that. That being said, I do think there is an avenue where if both parties want to have uh, online arguments, I think we need to, as a court, we need to maybe think about how we can do both, where maybe we have different tracks. Maybe we have some calendars are just virtual, some calendars are in person. For example, if you have a death penalty case as a judge, I would prefer that to be in person. And I don't know why I feel that way, but just maybe because death is different. I feel like that needs to be more. Other cases, maybe they don't require as much. And also for lawyers sake, it is much easier to do this by video. To have to fly from the East Coast to California for a 10 minute oral argument, you know, I'm not sure that really makes sense anymore. And so I, I'm hoping that we take the good part of what we've learned from COVID technology and combine it with the good part of what we had from before so we can do both. So you've been you've been doing your oral arguments on Zoom, and you know you've been live streaming oral arguments long before that. Uh, talking about cameras in the courtroom, and one <laughs> of the ideas, one of the arguments that's often made in opposition to the ideas of cameras at the Supreme Court is this idea that lawyers are going to grandstand for the cameras. But the Ninth Circuit hears a lot of high-profile cases. You, know, you heard the travel ban. Uh, before it made its way up to the Supreme Court. And in practice, it doesn't really seem to be, from as far as I can tell, a problem. 
but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Well, look, uh, I am not trying to get on the Supreme Court, so I'll speak very freely. Um, I don't think there's a problem with cameras in the courtroom. I really don't. Um, and it's kind of hard to know if there's going to be a problem unless you try it. You know, it's very easy to say, well, we're never going to do it because imagine what happens if we do. Well, on the flip side, imagine if you do, what's the worst that could happen? The Supreme Court bar is a very small bar, and there's a whole there are a lot of problems with that, quite honestly. But it is what it is. And I don't think members at the Supreme Court bar are going to sully their reputation by you know, bringing props into the courtroom or jumping around, trying to create a meme or a TikTok video. I just don't think they're going to do that because I don't think that that sells to the Supreme Court. I don't think Justice Thomas is going to be impressed with someone who behaves that way. So as long as the court is not rewarding that type of behavior, I don't see why people would behave that way. So honestly, I, I, you know, I'm not in Congress. I'm not making the decision, but I will just, so I'll, I'll answer your question somewhat politically. I have not seen a problem with cameras in our court. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> nice. It's nice to hear. Um, and then just sort of one last question, you know, obviously oral argument is as the, the justices are often reminding us when they talk about another reason why they are opposed to cameras in the courtroom, um, only a, a part of the work that courts do. How has the pandemic affected the rest of your day-to-day -day operations? You know, obviously you're not necessarily meeting with colleagues in person. That honestly has been the biggest challenge. It hasn't been the technology. It hasn't been the arguments is that we are a court. And we have law clerks. I have 28 other active judges on this court. We have a number of senior judges who do a ton of work for our court. I have not seen any of them in person in over a year. That's a long time. That's a long time. On our, on our court, since 2018, we've added 10 new judges. Now, this will be the time normally where you get to meet them at court meetings, sitting with them in court. Uh, the conferences we have, which are very important to kind of get people on, on the same page and talking about what's going on in the court, see how we can improve things. Those have not happened. Uh, Zoom is wonderful, but a Zoom with 29 active judges on it is not going to work. You know, judges, we, we like to talk a lot. And so to have 29 at the same time, boy, that would be rough. So that's what we're, that's what we've been missing. And that we do need to figure out a way to, to get that back. And look, things are getting better by and large with COVID in our country. So I think we're headed in the right direction. And so I, I do think there's going to be an avenue to start doing these things again. But I think about the law clerks, many, I, I imagine, Amy, many of your listeners are probably law clerks. They've worked their whole lives to get to the point where they can spend time with a federal judge and in chambers and in my situation, we're in a federal courthouse, so we have jury trials across the hallway from my chambers. And that's a really exciting time in your life where you can walk across the hall and see a, a defendant cross-examined in a criminal case or see a criminal sentencing. Talk to me about things. Hopefully that's worth something, right? And that's not happening. And so I do feel very bad for the law clerks this year. Now we've all, each judge has done their own thing and and we're trying to get ours back in chambers in the next, in the near future. But it's that human element to the court that has been tough. The work has been fine. I have, an, I have the same iPad I had before. I read all of my materials on the iPad. I use the same 
technology to write the opinions, but it's the inability to see people, check in on how they're doing, learn about them, especially when you have 10 new people on the court. That's where things have been have been tougher. So it's not a it's not an end of days problem because it can be very easily fixed once we're able to regroup, but that has been a big challenge. Sure, sure. No, I completely understand. Um, well, here's hoping that we are all back in person that sooner rather than later. Judge, thank you so much for joining us. It was really great to talk to you. Oh, anytime. And, you know, no more Ashton Embrys. Like I said, law clerk scandal's bad. Law clerk scandal's bad. Agreed. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to our sponsor, Case Text. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.